You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. You know, last week uh, I spent a little bit of time talking to you guys a little bit about kind of the moment that the words of the Bible came alive for me. You guys remember this? I kind of talked about how as a child I had found a Bible, read a Bible, it was interesting, but it didn't do anything. That as a teenager that I, I found my way to a church kind of looking for something, seeking for meaning, and found it to be delightful to be around people who believed these things, but that I myself did not believe they didn't do anything. But that something changed in a moment when the Holy Spirit brought the words of the Lord alive for me. And kind of extending that story for you guys a little bit as you get to know me, especially for some of you guys who, like, you don't know me at all, I just want, I want to tell you, like, I wasn't raised in the church. I did not know the Lord from the guy next door, right? I, I, I mean, I was utterly blind the day that I met Jesus, right? And so I was maybe, I guess I don't know exactly how old it was, maybe 19, 20 years old. I've been walking away from everything pertaining to the Lord and had been at the end of my sin for some time, right? I was existing in a space where I had tried really everything that you could think to try uh, to build significance, meaning, value, um, security, uh, joy, and pleasure, and had found at the end of those things that I was always left hungering and thirsting for more. I was in the midst of a particular season of uh, sin and despair. Darkness was in a place of uh, routine panic attacks, and in the, in the middle of one of these, I'm walking along the Gulf of Mexico. I am on a vacation with a woman I shouldn't have been with, and we are, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm alone. It's maybe midnight. I can't hardly see my hand in front of my face as I am walking along the coast just maybe a month earlier had prayed this shaken fist prayer, the first authentic prayer I'd ever prayed to the Lord, just essentially saying to him, I acknowledge that something's broken in me, but whatever is broken in me must be your fault because you're supposed to be a powerful God who made all things. That's what I've heard. And so whatever's fault you might find in me must be your fault. And here I am maybe a month later walking along the Gulf of Mexico, and I experience what I can only explain as the veil being lifted. And the Holy Spirit communed with my spirit as Scripture testifies it happens. And I, if could, I could give words to the voice of God in that moment, just heard him say to me that I belonged to him. And suddenly everything started to change. And I prayed my first prayer of submission, of humble submission, of repentance, and just acknowledging my lowly estate before him. And not knowing the first thing about baptism and not claiming that this was anything like it, I walk out alone into the Gulf of Mexico and I hold my breath as long as I can under the water and say something to this God that I hardly know, that when I come up out of this water, have your way. What I've been doing hasn't been working for me. When I come up out of this water, whatever you need to do, you do it because I'm a mess. I go back to the studio. I break it off with this lady. We get off the airplane coming home, never speak to her again, buy a Bible, read it in three months um, on a night shift working at a hospital. And afterwards, when you're reading the Bible at that pace, hold on, I'm kind of tangled up here. When you're reading the Bible at that pace, you don't pick up on much. But what I did pick up on as a, uh, at that pace is that it just seemed that over and over again that people suck 
and they just keep doing what they ought not do, and that God, for reasons that only he knows, just decides to continually forgive and to set his saving affection upon a people. And even though they don't do anything right, and even though they just kind of seem to continue to make uh, uh, every wrong decision, uh, every, every opportunity to make a right turn or a wrong turn, they make the wrong one, that the Lord in his mercy just continues to forgive. And this is really good news for me because I was the guy who just keeps doing the wrong thing and I expected that I was likely going to continue to struggle to just continually do the wrong thing and that if I had any hope at all, he was going to have to be a God who in his power saves and forgives. And in reading the Word of God and having it illuminated to me, discovered that, in fact, that is the kind of God that we worship. Amen? Well, the response to that is, I mean, I acted like I had discovered it, like that I was like the first one to ever hear about this God, and I needed everyone to know. So on my day shifts, I would sit at a different cafeteria table every day and just like be like, guys, have you ever heard of Jesus? And just like telling, like putting my job on the line every day because I needed everyone to know that there was this God who forgives people who don't deserve it and who brings them from death into life and can change everything in a moment. And of course, this was the beginning of the Lord making a church planter and a pastor out of me. I never would have thought that a day would come where five years ago, Mercy's Door was just an idea in a living room, that she would start as 12 friends in a living room, and that today we would be five years in and a church that didn't formerly exist would exist, that I would be made a pastor over that church, and that today when we get outside, I'm going to be baptizing my third and last son into this church, all three of my sons having been baptized into the faith in a church that was just an idea five years ago. This is the faithfulness of God in the life of the guy speaking up here today. And similarly, you're going to find stories like this among the 14 people I think we have today that we're baptizing. And, then, uh, and you're going to find that if you commune with these folks in gospel community, you're going to hear similar stories. And they sound a lot like this, getting into our text this morning. What happened? I don't know, but I was blind and now I see. This is the best that we can do to explain these things, right? Well, I, I want you guys to, to pick up on the way that this progresses in the life of a person who experiences Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have been here, I want you to delight in remembering it for yourself and seeing it. And for others of you who have stood on the outskirts looking in, like some of those we'll see this morning, I pray that you would see what it means to really get your eyes on him. Chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus is passing by. This is after the Feast of Booths, right? He sees a man who is blind from birth, born blind, okay? And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who was it who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says back to them, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, okay? That the works of God might be displayed in him. And this is not in any way a main point of my message this morning, but because we are a packed house this morning, it would be unloving for me not to take a minute and talk to y'all about it, just in case even one of you is living in this slavery, okay? But it was not in any way kind of outside the bounds of orthodox thought in, in, in uh, ancient Judaism for them to believe one of two things, that a child in the womb could be held culpable for the sin of his mother, if his mother were to sin while she was pregnant, or that a child could sin while he was still yet in the womb. And they would justify this with conversations about Jacob and Esau wrestling inside of their mother, things like this, right? And so this is a logical question for them. It's a theological question for them. Whose fault is it? Whose sin is it that this guy would be born and he would be born 
blind. Clearly, either he or his parents are at fault. And Jesus says, you're, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. It's not a matter of who sinned. It's a matter of whose glory is going to shine in this moment. It was not that this man sinned, but it was that uh, the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, there's a lot of bad theology in the church today about sickness and injury. And so that's why I just want to take a minute this morning and talk to you. Listen, if you are marked by infirmity, if you are marked by illness, by sickness, cancer, disease, COVID, autoimmune, whatever, if you wake up and it hurts, and day by day it hurts, and you have heard in your life that clearly this is your fault, that your sin has brought this upon yourself, or this is the, or this is the generational curse of someone else in your life, I want to free you from that this morning and say to you, what Jesus has to say about this is that it is neither his sin nor his parents' sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Christian, I need to say to you that when we start to believe this, and you're not alone if you believe this. There's others in here who have struggled with this. When you look at your plight against malady and infirmity and you say, what, what, is, what is God trying to do here? What is he trying to teach me? He's clearly punishing me here for something. And if I could just this or that obey better, then the Lord's favor would be upon me and my illness would be lifted. I want to free you from that this morning because here's what you're believing. You are believing as a Christian that your sin, which needed to be paid for, and I, and I affirm that it needed to be paid for, and was paid for at the cross by Jesus Christ. It didn't need, like, you, you didn't owe the Lord cancer for your sin. You didn't owe the Lord bodily suffering for your sin. You owed your life for your sin. You deserved what I deserved, death for your sin. We don't pay off our sin through personal suffering. We don't beat ourselves or sustain enough lowliness that somehow the Lord eventually turns from his wrath and changes it to pity on account of the suffering that you endured. That is not what we're called to. Payment must be made for sin, but you can't pay it. And you're not helping Jesus with your illness or with your suffering. He didn't need your help. He didn't require it. He paid it all. And I want that to be a freedom message for you this morning if you are found in Christ because you need to look upon your maladies and your sickness and those things that hurt with a completely different light and ask a different question, not what did I do wrong, but how does my Lord want to display his glory here? How does my Lord want to display his glory here? And let's see how he does it for this blind man. Jesus says we must work for the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus takes this moment with this guy and they said, why? Why was he born blind. Why has he spent all of these years as a beggar at the gates blind? And Jesus said, so that, watch this. And then what Jesus does is he spittles in the dirt, and he kneads mud packs together, and he sticks the mud packs on the guy's eyes and tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. 
And there's a couple of things that stood out to me when I saw the way that Jesus conducted this miracle. The first thing is the easier thing, and if you've been with Mercy's Door, then we talked a little bit about the Pool of Siloam. But the Pool of Siloam was a couple hundred yards away from the temple, and during the feast, which had just concluded before we got into this passage, for seven days the priest would, from the temple, would take this golden pitcher, and he would walk through the water gate down to the Pool of Siloam, and he would fill it up, and he would walk back to the temple altar, and he would pour out the water around the altar, and they would pray, Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. And on, the, and on the last day of the feast, they wouldn't do that ceremony. It was on that day, we preached this two weeks ago, where Jesus says, anyone who thirsts, come to me and you will be satisfied. This is the pool of Siloam. And this is the pool that he sends the guy to. This pool that the priests would go to and fill the pitcher and pour out the water as a symbol of the coming Messiah, as a symbol of their salvation. They would pour that out. Jesus says, from that pool, I want you to go bathe. And John, who is careful to make sure that he defines any terms that may not be understood by a non-Jewish audience, he makes sure that we understand that this name for the pool, Siloam, means sent. And Jesus has repeatedly said throughout the book of John so far, you know this, the Father sent me. I am the Son, and I, I am the sent one, right? So he says, go to the pool called sent, the pool where they draw the pitcher from. Bathe in it. But he doesn't say just do that. He adds another physical element to the healing. What Jesus does is he makes these mud packs, right? Now, I don't know theologically if I'm, like, way off on this, so, like, Maybe I'll take notes, just like, listen. But here's what I know. Jesus is claimed to be the light of the world, and our, our author John opens up this by declaring the high truths about Jesus, that he is the word at the creation account, that he is God himself, that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this Jesus, who is the word, who by the power of his word, all things were created. We know something else about the creation story, don't we? That he created all things by the power of just speech until he creates who? Until he creates man. And then he doesn't just speak. Then our God kneels down in the dirt and scooping dirt into his hand, he fashions man from the dust, and then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, joining himself to man, making him in his own image that we might reflect him in creation, right? In the creation story, our God, creative and all-powerful, looked at dirt and said, I'll call him Adam, and he made man. And if our God takes dirt and can make a whole human, then our God can take dirt and make eyeballs. Again, don't write it down. I'm not saying he made little eyeballs here. What I am saying is that the guy needed new eyes. From birth, they didn't work. So Jesus makes these mud packs from the dirt, his spittle and the dirt, and he fashions them. He sticks them on his eyes. He says, go wash, and he comes back seeing. So in some way, figurative or literal, our God, who fashioned man from the dust, takes these mud packs and he gives the man new sight. Well, the neighbors and those who had seen him before, he had come back seeing, they had seen him before as a beggar and they were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, uh, yeah, that's him. And others were saying, no, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. I'm, like, they wouldn't even listen to him. Like, they were like, yeah, shut up. We're, we'll decide, right? Uh, 
I'm the man, I'm the man. Well, he kind of looks like him. No, no, that's not him. I'm the man. Well, they said, then how were your eyes opened? And his answer is very simple. The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So at this point in the story, for the man who had received his sight, all he could say about Jesus is he's the man called Jesus. I think in our minds, we are imagining at this point in the story, at least if you're like me, we kind of fill in blanks that aren't there, and we think that he's seen him, but he hasn't. This guy had to go wash in order to receive his sight, which means he had not yet seen the man who told him to go and do the thing. And so for him, Jesus was still at this point just the man called Jesus, the one I've heard people talking about. He did this thing. Well, where is he? I don't know. Never seen the guy. If he goes standing in front of me right now, I couldn't tell you it was him. I've never seen him. But the fact that I could talk about what I've seen and haven't seen at all right now is the miracle, isn't it? Because until now, the answer was, I haven't seen anything. Now it's, I haven't seen him, not yet. Well, let's keep going. Then they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how could a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Which is right and wrong. Now we learn here in the story that it was the Sabbath when Jesus did this healing. And Jesus loved to do this. Again, we've been walking through this book. But Jesus is constantly doing stuff in ways that the people don't want him to do it in order to elevate conflict, in order to create these conversations, in order that he can prove himself to be who he claimed to be. And so here, not only does he do it on the Sabbath, but also, this is maybe not as interesting to you as it was to me, but the fact that they are so interested in how he did it isn't just like their awe and wonder at the miracle, but they're also looking to catch him up. They're looking to trip him up. They want to know, if he did it on the Sabbath, did he do it in a lawful way on the Sabbath? How did he do it? Because their Sabbath laws, if you were to read the, their Mishnah, which is a giant code book of laws about how you are to keep various laws of God, including the Sabbath, it will tell you what you're allowed to do and not to do. And you are not allowed to heal on the Sabbath, according to the Jewish Mishnah. Only if somebody is at the point of death. And since this was a chronic blindness, this guy would not have qualified for healing on the Sabbath. You'd have to wait till tomorrow. That's true. Now, I kind of doubt that they were thinking about this either, but it was also directly prohibited to knead on the Sabbath. No kneading on the Sabbath, explicitly stated. And I, I don't know, when Jesus was making the mud pie, he was kneading. 
They weren't interested so much in the miracle that happened, but how it was that Jesus came, because they're focusing on the fact that he did it on the Sabbath, looking for a way to trip him up. They ask him, well, who do you say he is? Suddenly interested in this guy who's been blind his whole life, who they believe culturally by being blind his whole life must be culpable for either his sin or his parents' sin, cursed by God. Suddenly the religious elite are interested in his opinion on who Jesus is. And he says he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe, verse 18, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son, one, that you say was born blind? I love how they, who you say was born blind so that they can maintain plausible deniability here. They want to acknowledge for sure that he was born blind, just that you say was born blind. And so they ask him, and, and so they say, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answer, we know this is our son. We know he was born blind. We don't know how he opened his eyes or who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age, likely meaning that he was older than 13 and legally in their culture could speak for himself, could make a testimony. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's why they said, he is of age, ask him. By suggesting that they said it this way because they were afraid to be thrown out of the synagogue means that the parents of the one who received the healing did in fact get the report on who it was that did it. And so they had the name in mind, but they were afraid to profess and confess that name because it would come at a great cost. It would mean being tossed out of the synagogue. And so they evaded those second questions and only answered the first. This is our son, and he was born blind. They didn't want to go any further. And so they bring the next guy, or the, the, the blind guy, back to them. And he says, for a second time, they called him and they said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, referring to Jesus. So an easier way to understand that question is, glorify God by saying what we already know and tell me Jesus is a sinner. Give glory to God. We know he's a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. See, this is the point in the message where I think that it's good for us to pause and to take an account of the progression and to think about what it means for us to be recipients of the living work, the regenerative work of Jesus Christ. Listen, he does not give a clinical answer for what happened to him because he doesn't have one. He doesn't even give a theological answer for what has happened to him because he doesn't have one. It's not, this guy is not trained in Torah. Like he's, he, he's not a student of the Mishnah. He's been blind his entire life, begging outside the gates, hoping just to get today's wages so that he can eat. Right? This guy is the last guy to speak theologically on who Jesus is, whether or not he's the Christ, whether or not he should have been able to do that, whether or not it was lawful to do it on the Sabbath, none of that. He doesn't make a theological argument or a clinical argument for what has happened to him. He simply states what he knows to be true, that thou, though I was blind, now I see. 
And just think that this is a template for us who have received new life in Jesus Christ, that you don't need to have all of the answers. Like, you don't need to make a great apologetic. You don't need to be able to work your way systematically through Old Testament and New to make the claim. Ultimately, you, if you have new life in the Spirit, can just speak experientially to what is true for you, that while you were once blind, now you see. I have been on the other end of ridicule and mockery my entire life by at least a subset of the people who walk with me on account of what it is that I profess to be true. And they would love, just like the people, the culture, the general folks around you, and even the own accuser within your own mind would love for you to be able to make a clinical or a theological argument for what it is that has happened to you. But the truth is, is that what makes you a Christian isn't so much about what you can describe, what you can define, how you can articulate it, any of that. Ultimately, the question is, has this Holy Spirit come upon you and taken a heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh or not? My evidence that this is true for me this is a terrible apologetic. My evidence for me that you can't take from me is that I pick this up and it does anything. That these words are life to me. That, that, that there's nothing that you could say that could make this not my Lord. Is him in me, his spirit, communing with my spirit. And all I can say to somebody who doesn't have that is I know what that's like. I don't expect that you could ascend to what I have here. I didn't ascend to it. What you lack, what you need in order to hear these words and to receive them and to believe them is the Spirit within you. And I can't do that for you. I can only preach the message that I was blind and now I see and His name is Jesus. And then you've got to go to Jesus and then let Him do the thing. I, don't, I can't make the mud packs. And so they are, you know, they want to know, um, when he says, all I know is that though I was blind, now I see, they say to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Again, really interested in the mechanics of the thing. And he answered them, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love how sassy this guy is. I love it. For some of you, there's hope for you, right? <laughs> Jesus can save you too. You know, you identify with his sarcasm. The, uh, this is a very much a side note, but the fact that Jesus used spittle was also an assault on the power structure of the day, okay? It was, again, generally believed that human excrement was, uh, was unclean and that to come into contact with blood, with urine, with spit, with anything, right, was, was unclean and that, it, and that it would harm you. And only, but they, there were also, um, both in the pagan culture and in the Jewish culture, they had an understanding that these things can have medicinal purposes in the right hands. Okay, it would be a whole thing. Um, and I'm new to the idea. I was, just, I was reading like an ancient medical text in order to understand it. But there is an idea that, the, uh, that even spit has medicinal purposes in the hands of one who has authority uh, by God to use it in a proper way. And so Jesus, by even using his own spit in this, as, as they, he would have talked to them about the mechanics of it, it would have really been unsettling to the religious leaders who had an opinion about whether or not it was lawful or okay or he had the right to use something that would normally make someone unclean to heal somebody. 
Okay, and of course, we know this type of thing with much bigger illustrations from Jesus, like when he touches a leper, he doesn't get leprosy. The other person gets healed, right? And so there's a reversal of direction here as God moves, or Jesus moves the power of God uh, through his body in his earthly ministry. And so um, he says, what, do you guys want to be his disciples? Is that why you keep asking me these details? And they revile him for this, saying, you're his disciple. But as for us, we are disciples of Moses. We know, verse 29, that God has spoken to Moses. But for this man, we don't know where he comes from which is ridiculous because last week or two weeks ago, I preached to you guys that their charge against him was he can't be the Christ because we do know where he comes from. So they like, first he can't be the Christ because we're not supposed to know where the Messiah comes from and we know where that guy comes from. Now, he can't be of God because we don't know where he comes from. This is willful blindness. It's willful ignorance. It's whatever I need to say, whatever I need to believe, whatever cognitive dissonance I need to create in my mind in order to arrive at what I've already decided, that you cannot be the Christ. The man answered, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man weren't from God, he could do nothing. His theology isn't even great there, but he's closer than they are. And they answer him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So they make it personal here. We had already talked about the question that was asked in the beginning of the passage. People claimed about him that he was born in utter sin, that that was why he was blind. Here the Pharisees are taking a dig at him, and they're saying, your blindness was absolutely on account of the fact that you were born in utter sins. They just try to tear him down at this point. All of the Uh, whatever illusion they might have tried to construct that they were just asking objective questions as the religious leaders to make a determination on what was happening here. That's all out the window. Clearly, this is personal for them. They attack the guy uh, for being born blind, and then they do what his parents were afraid they would do, and they cast him out, likely casting him out of the synagogue contextually is what we're talking about here. So Jesus hears that they cast him out. This is kind of the end of of the story. He hears that they cast him out, and he goes to them. And like the, the word structure matters. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, verse 35. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus sees those who are cast out on account of him. So for those of you who in following Jesus are experiencing rejection and denial, being cast out even by folks who you so desire to have deep, intimate relation with, who you want to have their approval, who you desire to have the security of their affirmation, and instead you are cast out on account of what you claim about Jesus. Jesus hears, he sees that you've been cast out, and having found him, he said, do you believe? See, he comes to you. He finds you. You don't find him. He finds you in that hour, and he comes to you, and he brings it all together here because uh, we want to remember that every time that Jesus does a sign in his earthly ministry, they serve a higher purpose to signify and certify who it was that he claimed to be, okay? He's not just interested in healing one blind guy. 
He's interested in establishing his supremacy over all the earth and declaring to the whole world through these signifying signs who exactly he is, God himself in the flesh, the very son, the Messiah, the sent one, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And so he says to the man who is seeing him for the first time, don't forget, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says to him, you've seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Guys, this is the simple way that folks are saved. Like, we can make it a complicated debate, but it just looks like this. Like, we have to look at the order. What happened first? Did the man believe receive his sight, or did he receive his sight and upon seeing, believe? The order matters here. The Lord is the one who pursued him. The Lord is the one who went to him. He had no ability to come to him on his own power. He was utterly blind. Jesus came to him. Jesus pursued him. Jesus healed his eyes, and upon seeing, presents himself to him, now with the scales lifted, able to look upon Jesus. And when Jesus says to him, it's me, the guy's like, of course it's you. No ability to do that before. It was all initiated and carried out by Jesus for this man. And his response is exactly what you would expect. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And here Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world, for those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You see, the light of the sun, who claims to be the light of the world, this light shines so brightly, folks, that those who are blind, spiritually dead in their trespasses in which they once walked, unable to to climb their way to God, who know this, who know their lowly estate, and who, who have no hope of climbing their way to God, The light of Christ shines for them and takes blindness and makes it sight. But for those who already see, who claim to know the way, to be good enough, to be pure enough, to be holy enough, to be righteous enough, to claim to to know some other way, to be in the good favor of God based on their own merit, these folks who claim to be able to see the light of the sun shine so brightly for them that it blinds them. They can't stand to see it. Because now to submit to Christ and to humbly come to him as a beggar and not as one who has earned from him right standing with God would mean to lay down what I have been clinging to for my righteousness and they're unwilling to do it. And every single person in the world stands in one of these two camps. Either you are blind and the light of Christ brings you into seeing or you can see and the light of Christ blinds you. It further blinds you. I take this idea... From Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'll, I'll move quickly. Let me read this to you. Paul wrote it. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. A little further down, it says that, And since they did not, verse 28, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, kids, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. See, each and every person on this earth either has been turned over to the debased mind, having been shown everything they need, to, they need to see to know that their God is creator God and that they are mere created beings and that these things are evil in his sight. None is without excuse. This is what the scriptures teach us, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we have been shown what we need to see to acknowledge that our God is our God, and yet they won't. And in their refusal to see him for who he has shown himself to be, the Lord turns them over to that debasement of their mind. That sin has literally corrupted the way they think. And we can see it in the interaction of the Pharisees. They are, at this point, willfully blind. They must deny the light. Because we know from John wrote in chapter 3 that those who do evil prefer the darkness to the light because their deeds are wicked. And the light would expose them. But 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that I want you to understand that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See, this is the difference, and this is how I'll wrap it up, okay? Listen, the confidence that you have in Jesus Christ, the confidence that you have that you are not among those who deny God, but that you are, that you are among the children of God, is if you can confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he's the same guy who wrote about those who have been turned over to a debased mind. He says, your confidence is this. If Jesus is your Lord, you belong to him because only the Holy Spirit can make you say that. How do I know my status before my king? Well, because I know that Jesus is my Lord. And so this morning, as we move our way out to these baptismal waters and, and, we, and we take these folks and we, and we submerge them, what they are doing is they are obeying the voice of their Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Well, the first of which being, go and be baptized. And so the fact that you receive his words as your Lord and want to get into those waters and obey him unto your baptism is the evidence that the Spirit is alive in you because you are confessing his lordship. But anything other than confessing Christ as Lord, calling him anything but Lord, folks, it means that you're still an outsider looking in. And so I just, I, I implore that you for yourself today would believe the gospel and that rather than trying to academically ascend to it, that you would recognize that you need the Spirit to do this for you, that you would call on Him for help, 
And for those of us who have received that help, that we would carry that message out to those who need to hear it, not ashamed of the gospel, because we've seen that it's the power of salvation for those who believe and that the blind can be given their sight. Would you pray with me to that end this morning? And then we are going to go and tangibly believe this together.